We'll be in Matthew chapter 18, so if you'll find your place there, Matthew chapter 18. How many of you consider yourself to be someone who has a good imagination? Is there anyone like that in the building? Some of you? Some of you aren't too sure? Maybe, maybe not. Imagination is defined as the ability to form mental images of things that are not present to the senses or not considered to be real. I can remember myself at times growing up, especially using imagination. When I concluded ninth grade and was getting ready to go into 10th grade, our church that we were a part of decided to start a Christian school. And I was very hopeful that from year number one, we would have a basketball team. And so the summer going into my 10th grade year, I spent a lot of time working on my basketball skills. We had a hoop at home that I had purchased and, and assembled and put up. And so I would spend a lot of time just out there in the driveway honing my basketball skills. Practicing a lot just on my own, going through drills. I would do layup lines all by myself jump shot lines all by myself, practice boxing out the air all by myself, and I would scrimmage all by myself. You say, how would you scrimmage? I would imagine I was a member of the Chicago Bulls, playing in the United Center. Finals tied up 3-3, we're down by one late in the fourth quarter. Was Michael Jordan taking the final shot? No, I was, and I hit it every single time. We went 82-0 and that season and flew through the playoffs, and I hit the game-winning jump shot in every single game. It was quite an imagination, I know. We've set our vision for 2023 to grow in loving God and loving others. And as we pursue, we know that understanding God's love more is essential. Even understanding more of God's love for us. And that's why I challenged you to make a portion of Paul's prayer for the Ephesians your prayer this year. Ephesians 3, 17 through 19, Paul wrote that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. That ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. I hope that you've already taken up that challenge, and that you've been praying along these lines for yourself your family, and for our church. But do you know that it's right after that, in this context, that Paul identified God as the one who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Paul says that we have a God who can do more than we ask, more than we can even imagine. And he said that right on the heels of talking uh, to us about God's love. In many ways, God's love is more than we can even imagine. 
just about the time that you think you've reached the peak of understanding God's love, you find that there are depths still to be explored. And even though that's true, we should continually seek to grow in our understanding. Because it's through understanding more of God's love that we are enabled to love Him and love others better. And so over the next several weeks, God's led us to look at a series called Love Like Jesus. And through this series, we're going to look at different passages that define and or demonstrate God's love. And then we'll detail how we can reflect His love by letting Him love through us. And so we begin in Matthew 18 with, This message entitled, Grace Greater Than We Can Imagine. As you're in Matthew chapter 18, just setting up context, Jesus identified his desire and design for his disciples, and later for the church to forgive. At that time, the Jewish rabbis taught, that you should forgive someone an offense three times, but the fourth time they commit that offense against you, no more. You're done. They don't deserve any more forgiveness, or you're not responsible to forgive them any further than that. And so as Jesus is identifying his desire and design for his disciples to forgive, and coming later the church to forgive... Peter gets really pious. He knows what the rabbis teach, forgive three times and then don't go beyond that. So Peter says to the Lord, well, Jesus, we should forgive seven times then, right? And it's here that Jesus gives an answer and a parable. In his answer, Jesus taught that we shouldn't account forgiveness rather we should live lives of forgiveness through the parable jesus illustrates the depth of god's grace and love for sinners matthew 18 look beginning in verse 21 then came peter to him and said lord how oft shall my brother sin against me and i forgive him till seven times Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Okay, pastor, so 490 times, right? Is Jesus telling me to keep a ledger of forgiveness? No, what Jesus is doing is saying, don't account of it. Just live out forgiveness. In your daily life, that should be character. That should be your typical response to the hurts and the betrayals of life. Forgiveness. Verse 23, Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him 10,000 talents, But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. 
The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave the debt. This parable reveals grace and love beyond what we have imagined or could imagine. What it teaches us is this simple truth. God pours out his love and grace on us freely and richly. The depth of his grace, the depths of his love amazes and challenges us. What does this parable reveal about the unimaginable grace and love of God? There are two aspects of the por- this portion of the parable we are considering, and they demonstrate these to us. And they begin to challenge us with what it means for our lives. So let's start with number one. I want you to consider the debt of the servant. Consider the debt of the servant. Jesus pre- presents an illustration where a king is calling his servants to come and account essentially for how they have handled his business affairs. These are his servants. They're taking care of his business. And now they have to come and give account of how they're doing, how they've done. Perhaps in in our context, we could think of being a cashier. How many of you have ever had a job where you were a cashier somewhere okay several of you you're handling a drawer and in that drawer is cash and maybe not as much anymore for some time but every once in a while still people pay in cash and you have to come up with change and provide the change and so on at the end of the day a boss a supervisor a manager is going to go through that drawer and what are they doing they're making sure it balances out taking account of it that all the the record of incoming and outgoing cash flow that everything equals out it balances maybe you can think of an employer um, or an accountant who's balancing the books to make sure everything's been accurately recorded and balances out if you've ever been through an audit whether personally or in business you can begin to understand what is taking place here Give account. How have you handled my business? Well, in this parable, a servant is called before his Lord and he's gotten something terribly wrong. In the handling of the affairs, it's determined that this servant owes his master 10,000 talents. Now, in case you struggle to really wrap your mind around what that means let me help you a little bit if we're talking about gold talents gold talents in that day weighed somewhere between 58 and 80 pounds each think about a solid gold bar that weighs somewhere in the neighborhood of let's say 60 to 80 pounds does anyone happen to know in today's economy what the going price for an ounce of gold is i i looked it up earlier this week when i looked it up earlier this week it was nearly two thousand dollars so let's do the math 
about $1,980 times 16 ounces to get the pounds, times 58 to 80 pounds, times 10,000, and you end up with somewhere in the neighborhood of 18 to 25 billion dollars. I think I know the answer, but has anyone in here ever been that much in debt? You may think at some point in your life, man, I'm in a bad place. I owe this, and I owe that, and I owe that over here, and I only have this much coming in. But I find it hard to believe that anyone here has ever been in that kind of debt. What would you call it if you suddenly found yourself in 18 to 25 billion dollars in debt what would you call that situation impossible hopeless pastor that's just bad what was the point you might look at what jesus presents here and go that's ludicrous why, why is Jesus giving such an exaggerated illustration? What point is he trying to get across? And I would present to you this. Number one, the debt represents a memorandum of our sin. You see, when you look at this parable, Jesus wants you to see a couple of things. Number one, he wants you to see him as the king. Jesus is the king. He's the master. He's the Lord. And though we may not think about it often, we may tend to neglect it, or, or maybe you just don't even give it a thought. Someday, you and I are going to stand and give account before him. He wants you to see something else. He wants you to see yourself as that servant. I am the servant that owes him an impossible debt. You are the servant that owes him an impossible debt. You may think, praise God, I've never been in debt like that. And I would stop you for a moment and say, yes, you have. Because Jesus is that king. You are that servant. And we've all been there. When Jesus says the Lord would take account of and reckon with his servants, it identifies the thought of accounting or computing. But I want you to understand, in the biblical language, it also includes what is said and the motives behind it. And that gives you maybe a little clearer picture of what it is we'll be giving an account of when we stand before him. And it should cause us to think of that reality. Everything is known to him. He knows every action, every word, every thought, the intent of our hearts. And when all of this is reckoned up and accounted, we are all found wanting and owing him a debt that we cannot pay. And then secondly, the debt represents the magnitude of our sin. Why would Jesus exaggerate a story like this? 
Why would Jesus exaggerate a servant owing his master a debt like that? I, I mean, was that even possible? Why did Jesus do it? He did it because the depth of our sin cannot be overstated and exaggerated. The debt that seems impossible to rack up does not exaggerate my sin debt, but adequately explains it. My sin leaves me utterly indebted to God in a way I could never recover from. But do you understand tonight that one of the tendencies of sin is to cause us to minimize our sinfulness? Friend, any time that you minimize your sinfulness, that itself is a tendency of sin. That is a characteristic of a sinner. We minimize our sinfulness, even in light of the resplendent glory of the holiness of God. Understand this tonight. You cannot possibly overstate your sinfulness. Your debt is that big. Your debt is impossible to pay. You could never be enough, do enough, or make enough to pay that debt down, let alone pay it off. By the way, maybe for someone here tonight or someone watching or listening on the internet, this is why salvation by works systems are so contradictory to the scriptures. I've heard it. I have stood at the door of people right here in Rocky Mount. Do you know you're going to heaven? Yes. How do you know? Well, because I'm a pretty good person. Because I think that when I stand before God, my good will outweigh my bad on the scales of justice. Do you know what you're doing? You're doing two things that are on. You are minimizing your sinfulness and maximizing your righteousness. What does God say about my sinfulness? It's exceeding sinful. What does that mean? It's over and above. It's beyond what I can possibly even conceive of. And what does he say about my righteousness? It's as filthy rags. It's filthy still. Friends, do not read this scripture and see someone else in it. Read it and see yourself. He's the Lord you're the servant. This is your story. And it's mine. But then secondly, not only consider the debt of the servant, but consider the forgiveness of the king. The response of the servant is, is really kind of pitiful. Isn't it? And it goes right along with that human tendency to minimize sinfulness, to think that I can do enough good to make up for it, to pay off the debt. What does the servant do? He hears that he owes his Lord 10,000 talents. If we're talking gold talents in our context, somewhere between 18 and 25 billion dollars. And the king passes judgment, and the servant falls down before him and says... Lord, have patience with me and I'll do what? Pay it all. Ridiculous. Not possible. But do you know what Jesus actually does here? The response of this servant reveals man's tendency to 
minimize sin, to maximize his own righteousness and works and resources. But it also emphasizes the grace and love of the king. Because here's the servant who falls down before him and says, Lord, I can do it. I, just have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And the Lord doesn't say, oh, foolish man. How ludicrous that statement is. You can't possibly do it. The servant asked for more time to make up the lack and pay off the king. But there was no possibility of that ever happening. One writer said it this way. Be patient with me and I will pay back everything is pitifully untrue. As threadbare as our own excuses and palliatives, I will try a bit harder. I will come to church. Surely that will do, but it won't. The debt is phenomenal. A thousand times the annual revenue of Galilee, Judea, Samaria, and Idumea put together. Totally beyond imagining. And the king forgives him the lot. The parallel is plain. That is what God has done to the sins of the disciple, any disciple. They have been piling up for years like debts. Every day, every hour adds to them. They can never be paid. And God says, I release you from that debt. That was his response. I forgive you. What? Why? You see, it wasn't about the servant. It was about him. It was about his grace, his love. His grace and his love flowed in the form of forgiveness. Notice in forgiveness, verse 27, Then the Lord of that servant was moved with what? Compassion. His forgiveness is compassionate. The phrase is one word in the original. It literally means to have the bowels yearn, to feel sympathy or pity. It connotes having compassion for, having pity on, having one's heart go out to someone, to be affected deeply in one's inner being. And as you study the New Testament, you find this word used 12 times. And in every case, it is used in some way of Jesus. In every case. So it's tied to him in a unique way. And it represents this king who is moved by the plight of his servant. And I want you to remember and think about this. The servant owes him 10,000 talents. So who is the one who's been wronged here? The king. He's the one who's been wronged. He's the one who's been hurt. He's the one who's been betrayed. He's the one who's been the victim of unfaithfulness and disloyalty. He's the one who's been sinned against all of the wrong was against him. And yet, he forgives. He's not moved and motivated by his own hurt. 
He's not moved or motivated by his servant's unfaithfulness. He's not moved or motivated by the wrong done to him. He is motivated by his servant's plight. His inability to pay it off. Moved with compassion. He forgives the whole debt. And I want you to understand, Jesus is the king. You're the servant. Jesus loved you so much. He poured his grace out on you so much that though you and I were the wrongdoers and he was the one done wrong, he was not moved by the fact that he had been done wrong. He was not moved by the fact that he had been hurt. He was motivated by your and my pitiful condition. And that we could do nothing to repay the debt that we owed. Being moved with compassion, he came. He lived the life we couldn't. Died the death we deserved. Rose again and offers us forgiveness. All because he loves us. His forgiveness is liberating. Look there, verse 27. Then the Lord of the servant was moved with compassion and loosed him. I love that, don't you? It it literally means to free fully. Friends, his is not a conditional forgiveness. It it was not a forgiveness that would leave the servant with a price still over him. Well, I'll I'll forgive you half the debt. Let's settle for half and half. I'll forgive you 90% of the debt, but you still need to make up the 10%. If you don't do it within this certain time frame, then the entire debt is back on you. That wasn't it at all. The king said, loose him. Set him free completely. There's no price over him anymore. It didn't leave him with a price still to pay, a duty to perform, nor did it come with a disclosure listing, listing all of the ways that it could be rescinded. And that's true of God's forgiveness of us, isn't it? Freedom indeed is the message of the gospel. And then his forgiveness is complete. Because of Jesus' finished work in his death and resurrection, believers can rest in the security of God's grace. I love the places in the New Testament where the Bible records for us the thought that all your sin, all your iniquity, all your transgression was laid on him, and when you come to him, you are forgiven of it all. Every sin. Not one is left on your account. Not one sin leaves you still in debt. He forgave it all. Our debt is paid in full. We don't need faith and. Faith and performance. Faith and keeping the law. Faith and perfection. We can rest in the finished work of Jesus for ourselves by believing in what he did for us. 
We don't need to supplement Jesus' work with anything of our own work, striving to earn favor or right standing with God. What he did is enough, and he did it because of his grace and his love for us. What amazing love. The depths of God's grace and love amazes and challenges us. Though our sin is so great and deserves death, God, through his grace and love, forgives us. It's not known who the author was, but someone at some time wrote these verses entitled, There's Forgiveness. Don't struggle alone in fear and distress. As if there's no hope, just your ugliness. Our Lord offers grace, not judgment deserving. He longs for your love and your soon returning. There's forgiveness. It's tough cutting through the darkness of sin, striving for answers, his favor to win. He stands with his arms outstretched and extended to hold and restore you, just mercy intended. There's forgiveness. Why search other places your answers to find, to fill the vast void and touch the divine? Lay down your excuses and learn to confess your sins and your shame to his holiness. There's forgiveness. There's healing and fellowship waiting for you. The moment you turn his face to pursue, you are the temple, his place for abiding. The only thing missing is your mind deciding there's forgiveness. Don't wait for a feeling or mystical lark. Just bow down in quietness, open your heart. Be honest and tell him no secret to keep. For there he restores you to fellowship sweet. There's forgiveness. His promise is certain, I will forgive. Cleansing in freedom, it's yours to live. From no other source, full joy will you find. He is your victory, your peace so sublime. There's forgiveness. To humble yourself before him in prayer in your first step and unloading your care. There look him squarely, straighten the face, and tell him all of the ways you disgrace. There's forgiveness. Refreshment and fullness he will restore the moment you sincerely open the door. He is the life you thought you could win by going your way and living in sin. There's forgiveness. There's no one beyond the reach of his arm to pick up and pardon, to rescue from harm. Return to the master of your face beginning. Give him your all and you'll find yourself winning. There's forgiveness. What wonderful love eternity holds for those who are willing to be in the fold. The Savior is waiting. Oh, come to him now. At his nail-scarred feet. In humility bow. There's forgiveness. If you're a child of God, this forgiveness is already yours. Revel in the unimaginable grace and love of God. Then recognize how God desires you to apply his grace and love to your life in your interaction with others. The way that he has loved you is the way he wants you to love others 
And then, if you're not a child of God, this forgiveness is available to you. Understand that this is the grace and love that God has for you. And you can experience it through believing in Jesus Christ who came to this earth. He lived that life you could not, died the death you deserve, and rose again. Also, you could experience this forgiveness. What unimaginable grace and love. He's that king. You're that servant. Praise God tonight that he does not leave us with an impossible debt that we can never pay, but in grace and love says, I forgive. What a wonderful God he is. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes this evening? Are you thankful for the grace and love of Jesus and for the forgiveness that's available through him? And maybe tonight you need to experience that forgiveness. Maybe tonight you're someone who has never trusted Jesus Christ and you're here in this auditorium, you're watching or listening online and God has spoken to your heart about your need of Christ. Maybe you've been that one who's been in that place where you've thought, I can do enough. I can, I can make my own way. I can earn this from God. And the resounding truth of God's word says, no, you can never earn it. You can never do enough. You can never deserve salvation. It is a free gift of God's grace and love through his son, Jesus. If you've never believed on Jesus, the invitation for you tonight is come, confess that you are a sinner condemned in your sin before God, that you can never do enough to earn his love and favor, and confess that you believe that Jesus died for your sin, was buried and rose again. You will, in your heart, believe the Bible says he will save you. And then for the child of God, I wonder tonight if God has spoken to your heart because some sin has had you in its grasp. And you've gone on in it as if you don't already have forgiveness. Tonight, God is inviting you to come and receive that fresh experience of forgiveness. You don't need to be saved again, but he wants you to be in fellowship with him. Your sin disturbs that. It, it, it hinders it. But God has fresh forgiveness for you. He'll forgive you. He'll cleanse you. And then tonight as a child of God and maybe God is already challenging you about your love for him and love for others and you need to respond to the Lord because of that